Uh, it's great to be with you this morning. I'm Bart, I'm minister at Emmanuel Church, the sister church to Christ Church. It is really good to be here. And uh, John being over at, uh, at Emmanuel, great that he's there preaching for us uh, in our series going through Judges. Uh, and it's good to be here preaching for you in the book of Luke. Let me lead us in prayer. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you for every part of your word. Thank you for every word in your word. Thank you for that passage that was just read so well. Father, please, would you help us to understand it, to understand why it's here, and please would you change us and shape us by your word. Amen. So, we're in Luke's Gospel, and you're going through Luke's Gospel, and the point of Luke's Gospel, uh, you saw a few weeks ago, Luke wrote it so that the reader, a guy called Theophilus, would have certainty about the things that had happened, the things that were to do with Jesus. And that's great for us as well, whether you're someone who is new to Christian things, maybe you wouldn't say that you're a Christian or whether you've been a Christian for many years, it is great to come back to Luke's Gospel, to read it through, to remind ourselves and to look at the evidence for, the certainty for who Jesus is and what He came to do. And this passage is particularly significant, I think, in that aim of giving certainty about who Jesus is. To be certain about Jesus, one of the things, some of the things that you would want would be to know his credentials and to have an endorsement about who he is. If you were going for a medical operation, you're going to see a consultant. You want those things, don't you? You want to know the person's credentials. You want letters after the na their name that stretch on for miles. You want to see the certificates maybe in their office of, 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 that they've studied, that they know what they're doing in doing this operation. And ideally, you'd like some endorsements, wouldn't you? Other people you know who've been operated on by this person who would say, yeah, they're really good. You want those endorsements. You want that accreditation. You want those credentials. You, you want that. And we've got that with Jesus. You've got it in Luke's gospel. As you've gone through, you've seen the angels announce Jesus' birth declaring who he is. You've seen John the Baptist declaring, preparing the way for Jesus. And now, in this passage, at the beginning of it, you've got God the Father and God the Holy Spirit endorsing Jesus. That's quite an amazing endorsement, isn't it? A voice from heaven declaring, this is my Son, the Spirit descending on him. And then that genealogy, which we will come to, which gives his credentials as well. It's quite staggering, isn't it, to have that as your endorsement as, and as, as credentials. But what are they endorsing him to be? Who are they endorsing him to be? After all, if you were in the surgeon's study and you looked and you saw, wow, loads of certificates, but you looked more closely and you saw that none of them were medical, you'd be a bit worried, wouldn't you? If they were balloon modeling certificates, you'd run a mile, wouldn't you? What are they actually endorsing him and, and giving him credentials for? Who is he? Who are they saying he is? 
That's what we're going to see in this passage. We're going to see three things that this passage, that the Father uh, and this passage endorses Jesus to be. We're going to see two from what the Father says and one from the genealogy. So, first, the first thing that this passage endorses Jesus as is the Son of God. Now you think, well, that's fairly obvious. Just look at it with me. Would you, verse 22, say, The baptism of Jesus happens. Jesus is praying. Heaven opens. The Spirit descends like a dove. It doesn't say he is a dove, but he's like a dove. And a voice from heaven, God the Father, declares of Jesus, You are my Son. What does that mean? Well, it's not that now Jesus becomes God's Son. Sometimes people have suggested that, that at Jesus' baptism, when this happens, that that is the moment at which he becomes the Son of God. No, that is not the case. We know that already. You know that if you've been here through the sermons in Luke, because when Jesus was at the temple, when he was uh, in his childhood, um, he said, you know, I had to be in my father's house. He knew he was the Son of God, and, and he already was the Son of God. So, this is not when Jesus becomes the Son of God. It's not God the Father giving Jesus information that he didn't know before. He's already said, you know, I had to be in my Father's house. He knows he's the Son of God. So, what does it mean to say that he is the Son? Well, we need to know that when God says, you are my Son, he is quoting from himself from the Old Testament, from earlier in the Bible. It's a quote from Psalm 2. Now, therefore, with a hand in Luke chapter 3, page 1029, would you turn back to page 543? 543 to Psalm 2. Page 543. Now, in Psalm 2, you need to know the setting of Psalm 2. It says at the beginning uh, about nations conspiring against God. So, you imagine all the nations of the world, all the kings of the world conspiring against God, saying we don't like God, we want to overthrow God. I mean, it seems ridiculous, doesn't it? But that's what they're doing in the beginning of this psalm, declaring that they want to overturn God. Verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. God is just, this is bonkers, this is ridiculous, ridicules them. And he rebukes them in his wrath, verse 5, terrifies them in his wrath. And then he says, verse 6, I have installed my king, on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. This figure, this son of God, this one that, who God says, you are my son, this is a king but not just any king. This is a king who has worldwide rule and who will defeat all rebellion against God. Now, that is a staggering position to be in, isn't it? That's an amazing king. We've never known any king like this before. A king who would have worldwide rule and unstoppable power. That is who the Son is. 
you see the enormous significance in Luke 3 of God saying, you are my son. But more than that, do you see in Psalm 2, I hope you've still got it in there, your finger in there, what it says about how the kings of the world should respond to this son. Verse 10, he says, therefore you kings be wise, be warned you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the son or he will be angry and your way will lead to destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So that's saying, for all the rulers of the world, all the kings of the earth, including today, the biggest issue that they face is how they will respond to this son. Will they kiss the son? Now, kissing the son, that is homage, humbly before this king. How will they respond to him? Will they be humble before him, or will they face his anger? Now, that's staggering, isn't it? There have been various photos over the last few weeks of world leaders. The Queen meeting Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Pictures of the President of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky. Pictures of Vladimir Putin. I can't help wondering, when, you, when I see those pictures, I can't help wondering... I wonder what it would be like to meet them. What would, it be, what would it be like to know you're going into a room to meet those world leaders? You know, each of them. If you were to go in and meet with the queen, I think that would be awe-inspiring, wouldn't it? I mean, that would be incredible. Or, or to meet Vladimir Zelensky, that would be... Uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, that would be... You would think that would be quite inspiring. What an amazing leader. What about to meet Vladimir Putin? I think, that would be, I think that would be quite terrifying. Clearly, his, his leaders, his ministers are terrified of him. Terrified they'll say the wrong thing. Imagine you were to go into that room. You, you knew you were going to meet Putin. This king, the son, is of greater power and authority than any of those leaders. He is the one they should fear. And whereas meeting those leaders, for you and me, is a, is a game of imagination, imagine what it would be like to meet them. This king, this son, the Bible tells us we will all one day meet. Whether world leaders or someone sitting listening to a sermon at Christchurch Surbiton, we will all one day meet him. Are you ready to meet him? He's the Son of God, which is a royal title. But second, we need more than that to be ready to meet him. Second, he's the suffering servant. Go back to Luke chapter 3, would you? I hope you kept a finger in there. Page 1029 if you didn't. See what else the Father says. Uh, so he says, you are my son. This is verse 22. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now we focus in on that last bit. With you I am well pleased. Now this is again another Old Testament reference. Takes us back again. It's amazing actually how many references there are. Old Testament references in just a few words. 
So again, keep your hand in in Luke chapter 3, and would you turn back to Isaiah 42, which is page 728, page 728. And page 728, Isaiah 42, verse 1. And I'll read that for us. It says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Now, where it says there, in whom I delight... That could also be translated uh, with whom I'm well pleased. So when God the Father declares of the Son, with him I am well pleased, he's quoting from Isaiah 42 verse 1. And do you notice also in Isaiah 42 verse 1, just to reinforce that this is what is being quoted, that the Spirit descends on this servant, and that is exactly what we see happening in Luke chapter 3, yeah? So the Spirit descends. God says, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. With, uh, with Him I'm, I'm well pleased. This is Isaiah 42. In other words, the Father is saying, this, the Lord Jesus, Jesus is the servant. Now, who is this servant in Isaiah? We need to know who He is. As you go through Isaiah, there are various times when this servant is referred to. There are four songs, which are called the servant songs, and Isaiah 42 is the first. And as you go through those servant songs in Isaiah, you see towards the end, in the last one, you see that this servant will be one who will suffer. And his suffering is no accident. It is incredibly significant. So, if you're in Isaiah 42, just flick over, would you, to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 4, so page 741, this is the last of the servant songs, and it says of the servant, verse 4, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering." Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the servant the suffering servant, who when he suffers and dies, takes the wrongdoing of others onto himself. Through his punishment and death, he'll bring healing and forgiveness. This illustration is often used. It's a helpful one because it's so simple. If this is us, Uh, And this is our sin, our wrongdoing. We are all sinners. Uh, It says in Isaiah 53, 6 there, doesn't it? We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each has turned to our own way. 
We are all sinners. We've all rebelled against God and rejected Him, and therefore our sin gets in the way of our relationship with God. But according to Isaiah 53, this servant will come, and though he had done nothing wrong, he takes our wrongdoing onto himself. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, our wrongdoing placed on Jesus so we can be forgiven. That is the servant, the suffering servant. That is who God the Father is declaring Jesus to be. Now notice, would you, that God the Father is saying that Jesus is both. And it is important to hold both together because they feel like they're pulling in opposite directions, don't they? That Jesus is the Son means He is King with universal, worldwide authority and incredible power. And yet, to say that he is the servant means that he will suffer and die. And that feels like that's going in opposite directions, doesn't it? Because the one who rules, you think they should rule in power and uh, glory, yet he's saying he's coming to suffer and die. And yet, we need both to be true, don't we? You see, the fact that he is the Son means that any rebellion against God, any rebellion against Jesus, is a very, very serious matter. But the Bible tells us we are all rebels against him. We all reject him, and therefore none of us is ready to meet him on our own. So what do we do? If we run from the Son, we will never escape. If we turn against him and decide to redouble our efforts in rebellion against the Son, we will never defeat him. We will never win. But if we turn to him and admit our rebellion, if we bring our sin to him, he is the suffering servant who takes our rebellion and wrongdoing onto himself and says, I'll take that for you and I will take it to the cross. He is both the son and the servant. Since he's the son, rebellion matters, and we must be in awe of him. But since he is the servant, rebellion can be forgiven, and we must be drawn to him, and we can be ready to meet him if we come to him as the suffering servant. Have you come to him yet? It is the only way to be ready to meet him. Well, there's one last thing for us to see, and it's in the genealogy. So back to Luke chapter 3. I wonder how you reacted when you knew. I love the fact that you don't see the genealogy until you turn the page. And then you're, you looked at it and saw it in front of you and thought, oh, is he going to read all of it? And he did. Why? Why would the preacher be so mean as to get the reader to read all that lot? I'm sure it inspired many of you to join the reading rotor. <laughs> well, at least you can say we've covered the whole of Luke's gospel, every word. There you go. But there's more to learn from this than that. Why is this genealogy here? Well, before we cover that, just one thing to cover which maybe some people struggle with. I know it, it, it was a question mark in my mind. You see, this isn't the only genealogy of Jesus in the New Testament. There's another one in Matthew's Gospel. And the problem that some people have is they're different. They've got different names on them. And um, 
we struggle with that because we think to ourselves, how can you have two different genealogies? I know I've got some of my family tree, and you can trace it back, but I, I've got one family tree. I, you know, I don't have another one as well. How does that work, that you could have more than one genealogy for someone? Uh, I'm reassured uh, that you can genuinely have more than one genealogy. One, th and there are actually several possibilities as to why you might have more than one. For instance, in Jesus' genealogy, it goes uh, Jesus, his father Joseph, but in Matthew's gospel, you get a different person as the father of Joseph than you do in Luke. You think, well, how can that be? Well, one possibility that people suggest, and it's a reasonable one, is back then there was a thing called leveret marriage. So if... Uh, a, a man dies leaving no heirs, no children, a close relative uh, could come in and take his place and have children in his place. And that then means, and immediately then brings in the possibility of two different branches going on there. You could, you could go down the line of the biological father or the one of, the, of the husband that he was replacing, whose children they were considered to be. So you could you've immediately got two different branches there, but there are other ways that you could have actually differences in a genealogy. So don't let it throw you the fact that there are actually two different genealogies. There, are, there could be other reasons as well. Okay, but what are we to notice from this genealogy? And the thing I want you to notice is where it stops. Now, you might have felt as we were going through, it was never gonna stop. But notice where it stops. You see, this takes us back in time, doesn't it? You start with Jesus, and you start working your way back through time. And we're going to travel back through this time. I'm not going to do every name again, but you go back. You go back, Jesus, to Joseph, and you go back, going back through time, back through time. And you go back through the list, and you get to 1 verse 28, where there's a guy called Ur, and you think to yourself, which parents are mean enough to call their child, ugh? Either they don't like it or they're very hesitant. But anyway, you go back. Ignore that. Go back. Go back through time, back through time, until you get to King David. Verse 31. King David is there in his genealogy. Now, that's important. And if you were to stop there, you would be thinking, the writer would be making a point about the fact of the royal line, because David was king of Israel, and uh, the one to come was going to be a descendant of David. So you would go, okay, that's important that he's in there, it's part of his credentials that you've got David in his genealogy. Great, David's there, but we don't stop at David, we wave David goodbye as we keep going back, going back through, until you get to Abraham. Verse 33, you go back to Abraham. Now, if you were to stop there, and Matthew does stop there. Actually, Matthew starts there because he does the whole thing the other way around. But if you were to stop at Abraham, you might think, ah, okay, he's identified with the Jewish nation, with the nation of Israel. This is one of the fathers of the Jewish nation. So he identifies with them. And Abraham received key promises from God. So maybe Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises. And he is. But we don't stop at Abraham. We wave Abraham goodbye as well, going back through time. And we go back and back and back. Verse 37, verse 38, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. It doesn't stop till we get right back to the first person in the Bible, 
Now, just as a little aside, interesting that the New Testament takes it very seriously that Adam was a real man, a real person. If you've got questions about that, give them to Anil later. He'd love to deal with them. I don't mind talking about it as well either, but it's interesting, isn't it? The New Testament just uh, completely unashamed of that. It just goes, yeah, of course, you can trace Jesus' genealogy back to him. He was a real person created by God. But that's not the big point here. The big point is, by going back, if you'd stopped at Abraham, you'd say, well, he's identified with the Jewish nation. He goes right the way back to Adam, first person created, identified with humanity. And therefore, our third point, so if you go on two slides, there we go. The point is, he's one of us. He's one of us. If you've watched the Olympics and someone from your country uh, wins gold, they're there on the podium, and you could think to yourself, there's one of us up there. One of us. When you read of Jesus being identified with Adam, you go, he's one of us. He's one of us. This sermon series is, uh, is titled Good News for Everyone, Good News for All. And that is part of the point here. Jesus is good news not just for the Jewish nation, though definitely for Israel, but he's good news for everyone. He's one of us. But more than that, You see, at the start of the Bible, God creates Adam and Eve. And the next thing that you see in chapter 3 is they're tempted by the devil. And they fall, disobey God. Here, the genealogy goes back and back and back. You get back to Adam. Adam is named. And then the next thing you see is Jesus going to be tempted. And Jesus doesn't fall. He doesn't fail. You see, as with that Olympian, you look at that Olympian when they're on the podium and you think, there's one of us doing what we can't do for us. So with Jesus, he's one of us. But we see in the temptations, he's doing what we could not do, what Adam did not do. And he's doing it for us. Why is that important? R.C. Sproul, theologian, in his book on Luke, asks the question, if you were to ask the question, what did Jesus do for you? The Sunday school answer, he says, and is not wrong, is Jesus died for me. He died so that I could be forgiven. And that is right. But he says, that's not all you need. If all Jesus did was come and die so that you could be forgiven, that wipes the slate clean, it clears the debt. But that's not what you need. You and I don't need just that. We don't just need the slate wiped clean and the debt cancelled. We need righteousness. We need something positive. We need a perfect life to be able to come into God's kingdom. We need Jesus to live the perfect life for us and give us his righteousness. You see, the book analogy sort of doesn't work. I mean, it does, but it needs a bit of adding to, doesn't it? You see, our sin uh, blocks uh, us from God, means that we deserve God's anger. But Jesus, in his perfect righteousness, and this is where this illustration becomes very hard to do, Jesus, in his perfect righteousness, 
uh, lived the perfect life, and he does it for us. On the cross, he takes our wrongdoing, yes, and we get his righteousness, his perfect life. So in the genealogy, what do you see? You see Jesus is one of us, and as you go on into the temptations, you see he's one of us doing what we can't do, and he's doing it for us, and we cheer him on, and we rejoice that he lived that righteous life for you and me. So, Luke 3, we see the endorsement of Jesus. We see his credentials telling us what about him? That he is the son, the king, that he is the suffering servant, and that he is one of us. The Father and the Spirit and the genealogy all giving you his credentials, his endorsement. I hope this gives you confidence, certainty as to who Jesus is. And as our confidence grows in him, we need to realize we need to respond to him, don't we? Because the claims of who Jesus is demand a response. To bow before the Son, to come to the servant, to be forgiven, and to come to the one who is one of us, identifying with us, doing what we could not do, and doing it for us. So we need to come to him for his righteousness. I'm going to lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you for uh, the Lord Jesus, that you spoke of him, to him, that the Spirit descended on him, and that you declared him to be your son, that he is the suffering servant, and that he is one of us. Father, thank you for Jesus. Help us, each of us, to respond to him. Amen.